everybody, welcome to another episode of Notes from the Aleph. An Aleph is a high point from which all things are visible, and from our vantage point we'll be looking at tabletop role-playing games, their design, and the theory behind those designs. Around here our motto is to be fair, build up, and have fun. I'm your host, Griffin Bro, joined by our editor Theta, our local designer Norman Rafferty, and our good friend and GM Red Rabbit. And here today with us is our other good friend, Lessons Learned, here as our guest slot for today. When it comes to tabletop games, I have 15 years of experience writing, playing, and frequently fixing problematic rule sets at the table. Pronouns are he, him, they, them, and let's go with Norman next. Introduce yourself. Hello, world. I'm Norman Rafferty. He, him. I work for Sanguine Games. Uh, since 1999, we've been publishing Iron Claw, and we also do like Farflung, Madcap, that kind of stuff. Um, it's September 10th, so in a couple weeks, uh, we'll be doing our How to Crowdfund uh, or How to Self-Publish DIY 101. And so we'll talk you through it because we published, uh, I think we're up to 17, 18 books now. I'm losing count. Woo. Wonderful. Nice. Yeah, triple Aces of Crowdfund. All right, Red. Hi, guys. Um, I'm Red Rabbit, a professional GM currently running games of 5th edition Vampire the Masquerade and Iron Claw and an on-again, off-again thing with Dungeon World. Uh, I like to consider myself a student of narrative and game design, and I'm happy to be here. All right, and lessons. I'm a Twitch streamer and YouTuber. I'm currently working on a, a form of Mass Effect Abridge. Uh, it's a new series on YouTube. Should be uh, first episode should be up by the next, the end of this month. I'm also a writer uh, of effective fiction. Uh, my first collection of your stories is on Amazon, Nights and Stars. And I GM for these wonderful crew of Ractus uh, uh, and uh, on Sundays, uh, Greyhawk Into the Wild Coast, a five edition um, the Dungeon, Dra uh, Dungeon Dragons game in the good old world of Greyhawk. Wonderful. All right, then. So for today, it's uh, it's the year 2020. Is it is it okay to say being evil is bad? I mean, I can only hope that next year that it doesn't become contentious. But we have with us today the curious case that in D&D, you can play an evil lion character. No requirements, no questions, just, just write evil on your sheet. And to be clear, within the text of D&D 5th edition, the various evils uh, are described as uh, do anything you want as long as the legal system supports it, do whatever you can get away with, and arbitrary violence. Not exactly uh, good behavior, but in the same book, you can also play Paladin of Vengeance that, as described, will track down evil and wrongdoers and let nothing get in their way of doing so. As you might surmise, having these two concepts in play will probably instigate a fight. And it should be plainly evident that it's not necessarily the fault of any players who would pick these concepts because they like them and the book said that they could play them, but rather that the rules that would have prevented this fight aren't there by design, and instead the situation's left up to an often very surprised GM to kind of mediate. So today, we're going to be talking about how rules endorse these sorts of behaviors and where design can go right or wrong in guiding player decision-making. So, who wants to go ahead and kick that off? Okay, um, I, I'll, I'll start. Because okay. I, I sort of been in and out of the discussion, especially when it comes to all evil races like orcs, right? You know, mm -hmm, Orcs mm -hmm. are always evil, goblins are always evil. And you have the grown arts, which I'm, you know, I guess... Uh, by, by temple of beam of my age, I'm a member of. Uh, who say, oh, you know, don't discuss this. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And then you have people like me. It's like, no, we should. You should discuss it. It's, you know, this is something that is something that we should talk about and move on from. But for the rules who say, open the book, the new master guide to X amount of orcs, it says, you know, they were created by and influenced by evil 
uh, deities and all that. And at best, you have you know uh, a, a few exceptions to that rule, right? Your orc may not be evil, but orcs in general are evil. Mm-hmm. So you want to have the discussion about whether or not you should have all evil races, and then the latest version of Dungeons & Dragons says, but why? They're all evil. Except for you, player character who's special and always can do whatever you want. That. They say yeah. all orcs uh, have the, uh, are constantly be, have the pull of evil. Really yes. weird. Yep. Yeah. I was considering putting that line in, but I just want to make my intro snappy. Uh, yeah. But yeah, they do have that exact text in there in that same very brief alignment section. Yeah, in fact, uh, I mean, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I'm always going back to uh, one thing, you know, topic that we have maintained in all our books. Rules endorse behavior. And what we mean by that is, if you have a rule for something, you are telling people, this is something we expect you to do. You know, mm-hmm. for example, D&D has short swords in it. They do 1d6 damage. At some point, if you were to take a short sword and stab someone else, that would be an okay thing to do. The rules said it was okay to use short swords as weapons against other people. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there's been other games, uh, sometimes when people have like complaints about a game, they're saying, well, this game has in it the context of the rules something we find incredibly distasteful. There are, very, there are a lot of edgelord games that have you know terrible rules in them of here we've mechanized doing things to people without their consent. And you can take the logic of, you know, like old school gamers, you know, the guys who wrote these giant Dungeon Masters guides and that kind of stuff often looked at this stuff as like a cookbook, like as in like rules you might use. You didn't have to use. I mean, just because we have a whole section on spells underwater doesn't mean that we necessarily expect you to go through and use all of this. Mm -hmm. But you get that's not how modern games are written. Modern games are usually written with the idea that um, a rule and it's going to be used. And the entire idea of putting good and evil as concepts in the rules like written down this is good this is evil it's it's the game making specific moral judgments and some history here you had some pushback because fourth edition dnd previous edition had text and it says well don't let your players be evil you can let monsters be evil any monster can be evil angels angels can be evil all of them can be evil so you feel good about killing them they're evil so you can kill them but there was pushback on it because people said D&D 3 let us be evil. Pathfinder lets us be evil. So in D&D 5, they put it back. But they, uh, I guess I'm, I'm going to assume a lack of editorial oversight. D&D 5 still assumes that you're a good character. If you pick up something like like Tyrant Queen, the campaign adventure, the evil Draconians, all clear, or Dragonborns, clearly labeled evil, are you know show up to Savage Coast and you fight them. Because he assumed that you will automatically ally with all the good people and fight them. Or like we said, like every monster, well, most monsters be labeled evil so you can feel good about killing them. But like you said, the paladin text still assumes that you would be good, even though you can play an evil paladin in D&D 5 because there's no alignment rules. So the game still assumes you would be good, but they gave you, you know, they still have evil as a concept that pervades the rules that they expect you to be able to pick. And it's extremely strange. It's a strange wishy-washiness. Because it's like they didn't, people got mad that D&D 4 wouldn't let you be evil, so they took it out of D&D 5, mm-hmm. but then they just wrote the book like you'd be good anyway. So it's like, uh, it's an incredibly mixed message to the player. But that follows a very long tradition in Dungeons & Dragons, 
that's one reason why many games say, oh, alignments? Nah, we don't like them. Let's throw them away, right? Because we don't need them. Like, for example, if you're playing, if you read any introduction of any module in the Gary Gygax era and Greyhawk, it's like the forces of wheel versus the forces of woe, right? And you're supposed to be the forces of wheel, right? You're supposed to be the good guys, even though, you know, there was chaotic evil. And you could take that, right? I can't agree with any of that because if you read all the old modules, it's um, like the whole S series challenge, like Tomb of Horrors. Doesn't care. It has a mixed party of good and evil because a king turns to a bunch of guys and says, "Hey, there's a tomb here. All of you owe me favors for some reason. All of you go investigate." Likewise, then you'd have expedition to the barrier peaks or lost caverns of Sajkanth, which are let's mount an expedition to go to a far off place to deal with it. Or like the Slaver series, my favorite, uh, which is, hey, there's a bunch of slavers out there going around and imprisoning people and robbing them. And the king doesn't like that because they don't work for me. So I'm going to round up all you mercenaries who are willing to kill for money. But I am actually quoting from the slavers because the description of slavers is like, oh, you know, the leaders of the forces of wheel includes the king, whatever. I've been da 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 da. It's like I have no copy somewhere. Anyway, uh, and then and then says I guess force of war, which are the the the, the creatures of the poor march and all that. So I mean, oh, yeah, it's all it's it all over the place. Never seen of it. Like Greyhawk doesn't have any of that mentioned anywhere. Uh, it also in the Temple of Mental Evil they say similar similar language. I've seen it before. Uh, you know, it repeats what's itself. It? Well, it's also I mean, fun and interesting in, in oh, terms of your heroes. Like it, like alignment. Uh, alignment is kind of a weird concept because if you well not kind of, it is weird. In fact, I'm against it because in original D, uh D, &D you had law and chaos remember not order and chaos but law and chaos because they ripped them right out of morcock morcock's eternal champion series has law which is rigidly defined and not fun and doesn't get anything done and chaos which wow let's do crazy stuff and be decadent and that kind of stuff and that was an interesting struggle because you had too much control versus no control at all you had in the middle you had balance not neutrality but balance and D and D needed factions, but they didn't want to. Do, they didn't do wheel and woe for some reason. That would have been awesome. They did law and chaos, and so you chose which side of ethos you were aligned with, who you would be serving. Would you serve the forces of law or the forces of chaos? And then Gary Gygax had his big dispute with Dan Dave Arneson and decided, I'm going to rewrite D and D so he doesn't get any royalties. And decided that law and chaos were too vague. Everything must be labeled good and evil. This must be done. Also, women are weaker than men. Ah, and, the absolutely talking, necessary edit. And talking about rules, uh, enforcing behavior, then you had a, a like a paladin who could who was supposed to be a religious, lawful, good character who had instant ability to detect evil. So you always hear at some evil. point in discussion was like that guy's evil. So I'm going to kill him. I was like, but no, we have to have role play. <laughs> yeah. And what campaign have you been in where the paladin or whoever doesn't, whoever has that ability, doesn't just use it literally every five seconds if they well, can, and, and also encouraged to do so. Speaking as the gray-haired person here, also one of the last books that came out for D and D was Unearth Arcana, and Unearth Arcana had super-powered evil characters in it because you could choose to be a drow who are all inherently evil. There's that again. Uh, and got spell resistance because, or magic resistance is what they called it back then. Magic, you got magic resistance, so you could just for free because you were evil. And then there were the evil gnomes who could summon earth elementals. So you could be a regular elf and not do that, or an evil elf who could do that. Hmm. And then it became even more gentrified because, uh, and I say gentrified for a reason, because it, it, as the editions came out and third edition actually was the worst, they cooked it in into the, the multiverse. Well, so, yeah, which is a cool idea. 
But more, yeah. uh, third edition had the fact that you have weapons that would do more damage against very specific types, like axiomatic and stuff well, like that. And made it made it made it well, what I call elemental. Like did the Pokemon yeah. thing, yeah. yeah, elemental. But at least third edition had a little sidebar in it that said, "Look, good and evil are material concepts in this world, but they also restrict your class options." Like, if you want to be a cleric, if you want to heal people, you can't be evil. If you want to, you know, control vast legions of the undead, you really can't be good. And so they sort of locked those. That was the last holdover towards because pre, previous D&D, everyone talks about the paladin, but you didn't have a paladin party because paladins had insane stats they had to roll. No, you had an assassin because assassins were better than thieves, but they had to be evil. And they got a free kill someone for free power that was incredibly vaguely defined. Plus, also, they could use shields because assassins use shields. I don't know. Obviously. So, um, right. So, um, you know, you had those alignment restrictions. They said, like, okay, in order to be a paladin, you have to be good. And also, they had this weird thing. The last thing I want to talk about is they used to have, like, alignments were supposed to be some sort of role-playing. They were supposed to influence your decisions. In D&D First Edition, they would talk about taking away your paladin's abilities or cleric's abilities or even regular player abilities, not let them level up if they acted against their alignment. With Third Edition, they started talking about, well, it restricts your certain classes and some of the items you can use and makes breaks from evil and good against you. When you get to Fifth Edition, Fifth Edition, they've removed all references to alignment in any mechanical concept. Paladins do not detect evil in 5th edition. There is no detect yeah. evil. They so detect weird. aberrations, undead, etc. And so goes for all the other spells. They uh, affect the types rather than an alignment. Which is weird, because someone's going to look up and say, what about protection from evil as a spell in D&D 5? And it's like, protection from evil actually doesn't work against evil. The text says it works against outsiders. It, it's so weird. Mm -hmm. And but, but they But they also felt they had to keep this text. And it creeps into the game. Where, um, you know, anything that they want you to be able to kill is labeled evil. Cobbles, evil. Orcs, evil. Bugbears, evil. And it's this weird thing where, um, you know, it, it started to flow over into the discourse of like when they started making more supplements and people said, well, what if we want to play Umantis? What if we want to play Cobbles? What if we want to play Orcs? And suddenly it kind of like, it, 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 I don't know if this is getting away from, from that kind of good evil, so I should probably stick with that. It's this weird thing where D&D and modern D&D insists on labeling everything good and evil, but doesn't insist on restricting your class choices, your power options, or anything. So in other words, alignment has, yeah, there's no alignment restriction doesn't mean anything in D&D 5. So they kept the good and evil labels with these weird problematics of do whatever you want anyway, it doesn't matter, be an evil paladin, who cares? But they kept the labels so you could murder things and feel good about it. All works are evil. And right. this, like, has gotten kind of ugly because people are saying, like, well, we think there might be some, like, racially coded statements or socially coded statements. Because I guess the last thing I want to say is d is the only game that does that. So thinking about another example of uh, player behavior encouraged by the rules. So... I think this is one that Red would probably actually be very familiar with. This is Flaws in Vampire. Do you remember the rules for those, Red, and how they are different across these different editions and how players react to them? Sorry, you're talking about the Flaws rule, like the opposite of merits? Correct. So in Vampire V20, you can take Flaws at character creation, and they will specifically give you experience points, and then in play, the DM is supposed to remember these Flaws and then put them out there. And what you see happening as a pattern of player behavior is that they take them all, and then nothing happens. 
So you're encouraged to just kind of optimize yourself with things that don't matter or will never happen. I'll point In later out editions, they actually start trying to fix this, and it actually kind of goes a little well. Uh, the edition of Requiem that comes out, the first one, uh, says you can take a fall, and when it affects you, you get experience. And then you have the behavior where players will attempt to maybe encourage it to get some more experience. They'll they'll fish for it, which is kind of interesting, but still maybe a little gamey. And then finally, you have the latest edition of Requiem, where it says you can take a fall, and you just have fun with that, okay? <laughs> Maybe um, you can put it down as an alternate goal, which uh, which will give you beats, which turn into experience. So it can function similarly, but it's far more opt-in than the previous versions. And so you see these different scales of player behavior according to how those rules are done. The rules endorsed you being a munchkin in V20. Yeah, that's actually very interesting. I would say it's interesting, too, that that system shows up in a lot of places, including the first edition of Iron Claw had a similar take on it, where you could um, mm -hmm. grab flaws for free experience points. Yeah, we were um, that. And it's no, yeah, it's not in the second edition, although it, it did sneak into some of like the alternate splat rules at the back of the book, which I thought well, was, they, were uh, still, uh, they were still first edition. No, we removed that because like, like to, to repeat what Griffin is. So you would take a bunch of stuff on your character and then, you know, like expect the GM to remember that you had an enemy uh, or, you know, that you're missing a hand or whatever. And then if you never brought that up. Uh, then, um, uh, you know, the GM might not punish you. But mm -hmm. when we get back into rules-endorsed behavior, one thing we were incredibly, like, crafty about or, or specific about was we didn't put anything in Iron Claw that we didn't want anyone to do. Like, for example, in a game like GURPS or Hero System, which were some of our influences, you'd see stuff like Berserk. You have a disadvantage that makes you go into a violent rage during which you kill everyone around you. Okay, we didn't put that in the book because if we put that in the book, someone could later say, hey, uh, the book said I could go on a berserker rage. I'm not just choosing to be a person who murders her. This rule book that we bought from professionals put this idea in my head that I could get points for this kind of behavior. And right. so we, yeah. we specifically didn't put things like that in the book. Later in second edition, we didn't put that in at all because we came to the conclusion that uh, what Griffin said. Um, right. So that gets kind of back into like that gets into weird questions. If Dungeons and Dragons says you can label yourself evil, then this then the book is endorsing that I will solve all of my problems with cruelty, violence and other non-consensual destructive activities. Mm -hmm. And the book told me it was OK to do this. Well, there's another interesting thing there, too, which is if you strip away all of the moral arguments, if you stripped away alignment and good and evil um, and all of that loaded stuff, and you just looked at the core of the rules of Dungeons and Dragons, it is a game about stabbing things with pointy objects. I think this is where a lot of the rub comes from and a lot of the um, moral hand-wringing comes from when people talk about how, you know, entire races are represented as just being badder than other races. Because um, a lot of that stuff was introduced simply to justify the act of stabbing things with pointy objects, which is considered largely in modern society to be an evil act. It's only not evil in cases of self-defense or when you are going up against something that threatened, I mean, that's still self-defense, but yeah, something that threatens your very way of life, which in the fantasy Europe, you know, is uh, monsters. Monsters threaten the villagers' ways of life. 
So even if you never met the uh, the ogre before, it was a noble deed to go out and kill the ogre because presumably he was going to kill you or one of your friends or your livestock. But, you know, that is a very old view of what heroism looks like. And I think people are trying to reconcile that with modern tastes, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh but, yeah. I mean, I mean, like one thing I've been harping on in some other ones is the idea um, the idea of parley, the idea of negotiating with your enemies is disgustingly absent from modern games. I'll just say that because a lot of the adventures that you read and the way they're presented, uh, you would go meet some monsters, engage in a fight with them and loot their corpses. And there would be a note on one of the corpses that tells you where the next part of the adventure is. At no point in the discussion of, of the text, is there anything new that you might actually try to negotiate with anyone you meet? Um, I mean, I'm sure maybe there's a modern exception to this, but I haven't seen it where like every encounter if it is framed as a combat encounter bad guys show up they attack you kill them ask no quarter and give none right it has to be very specifically framed in this way otherwise the default assumption is yeah this is a stabbing game we're going to stab them right Right. And, and as red said it's a stabbing game therefore what i did was okay even if my character was labeled as good what i did was okay because the game has framed it that we will resolve everything in the game by stabbing things. Skills like diplomacy or persuasion, waste of your time. Uh, you'll just go ahead and murder everything you meet. And uh, one perspective, it's a game. People play it to have fun. It's fun to get in conflicts and see kinds of crazy stuff to happen. That's fine as long as the game is framed that way. So like I said, it's weird that the game also feels like it was okay to kill them. They were evil. Like d and is the only game that does that. I want to tell a bit of a war story, which actually shocked my old grown-up uh, players back in third edition. Uh, actually, I think it was fourth edition. They go in, they get hired to resolve a problem in the in the mines where the workers were mostly orcs and half-orcs. So I go like, okay, they're going to go and kill the player. The, 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 the evil. That's what the their bosses expected them to do because that's what the IMR is for. They're not, they don't want to, you know, they want to break the strike, etc. So they go in, the first thing that the orcs and half-orcs will do is they don't attack them immediately. I mean, they have weapons, they're ready to fight, but they don't attack them immediately. And second, they say, we have grievances. Funny thing is one of one of the members of my old party is a, was a union member. Uh, so he was like, wait, 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 you have grievances? Like what? And they started talking and, um, you know, they resolved the situation saying, listen, you know, they just want a little higher pay and be able to be accommodating these minds because that's where they live now. They're being abused, etc. And they went back to the bosses who were not happy. But, you know, it turns out that now the player characters are the ones with the stabby things and spells and stuff like that, which the bosses didn't have. So it's like, okay, I guess we agree because now you're on their side. But looking back at that, the reward structure of, of, of Dungeons & Dragons has always been, uh, been you get experience points either for taking treasure, which either you avoid the bad guys or you kill them because they're in the way, or starting, especially in first edition, the reversal of killing the monsters, getting XP, and getting less XP or no XP for treasure, right? Uh, so, no, uh, you get way more XP for treasure than you do for killing the person, if you if you check the math on it. In first edition, but I think by second edition, they... they second, actually, edition, second edition is a complex system. They probably changed it by, t- by second Yeah, in first edition, they actually up the experience of monsters, but it was in transition. So, you know, clearly yeah. in the end, it was basically in the, you get more from getting the treasure than killing monsters. It was too dangerous. Don't do that. So over time, it, and by third edition, you get, 
Actually, uh, if you create if you create magical items, that you have to spend XP. So yeah, but, but, but third edition, it's uh, you get XP for killing monsters, and there's a sidebar on story reward. Yeah, and, and that's the story reward. It's like if you do get a story reward, it's this vague reward, right? So even if you do have skills like parlay or talk or whatever diplomacy, there's no reward structure for it. Right. And that is left sort of like, oh, hey, you get a story award because you solved this, right? Yeah. Uh, and but you don't get the specific right. award where like kill kill a goblin, you get a fifty XP. Like right? and, and, very, and very before we have people coming in the comments because people will say, well, technically there's the story reward that you could have given them for resolving this. The issue I'm bringing up here is this is not mentioned anywhere in the published adventure by the professionals who presented it to you. That they that they don't present the idea to you that you that like when when the players meet with the strikers they might choose to attack here's the combat or they might choose to parlay if they choose to parlay this is what might happen like that thing I'm talking about where if they choose to negotiate with them will not be anywhere in the text it doesn't come up as an idea and I want to mention that is unique to Dungeons and Dragons you can look at other like Palladium which has a reputation for rifts. Rift's adventures have the option to negotiate. When your Gonzo guns that fire a mile and blow holes through continents game has has options to negotiate, and D&D doesn't, you know, the more down-to-earth Dwarves and Elves game doesn't, you might want to start to think about what's the message this game is sending. Right. A, a majority of the mechanics are going to be about stabbing things, not doing the talking or negotiating a piece or hearing out grievances in a way that make people feel like you care about them. And there's and another... There are some of the verbs there in skills, but some of those verbs aren't great verbs. Like, I think yeah. once uh, Rafferty did mention, like, the way that he chose some of the skills for Ironclaw was specifically how he wants people to view things. If a negotiation implies that, you know, you're going to do some sort of give and take, when it comes to D&D, you have diplomacy where players just treat it as mind-wiping oh, someone to do what you right want. There. I am so mad at D&D 5 because D&D 5 removed diplomacy. All right, it's D &D, persuasion now. It's pers It used to be that in D&D, &D you couldn't do anything to anyone against their consent. <clears throat> With bluff, you could say something that they might uh, that they they don't know if it's true or not. With Intimidate, you know, this is third edition, with Intimidate, you could make them afraid. They can still do whatever they want. They're just shaken. And with Diplomacy, all you could do is change their feeling level towards you. If they were hostile, you could change it to neutral. If they were neutral, you could change it to friendly. You, you couldn't make them do anything. You could just change their opinion. D&D 5, deciding this was too difficult, put in a skill called Persuasion. And Persuasion is you just point at people and make them do things. And so it is like not, once again, we're back to don't treat anyone in the game as an, as a willful entity, uh, just order them to do things. Uh, and, and, um, yeah, I'm disgusted by that, but that, you know, that like, like why they had to do that. Uh, I do think it bears underlining this because I think this is very, uh, very obvious in lessons, uh, war story there. And I think we have been kind of saying it, but I do want to underline it, which is that, um, once again, the uh there's not a lot of mechanical crunch to negotiation like we just mentioned the skills that are involved that you can use in these kinds of scenes but in uh the example that lesson gave it was not anything that the player characters were being tested by it was the players deciding hey this is a bad situation how can we solve this with logic which is cool it's one of the great things about role-playing games 
but it is another scene where none of the mechanics that you invested your time and energy into when you created these characters are being engaged by this well, particular scene. And, and which means that the rules that. are discouraging you from using those mechanics or lack of right. mechanics. I mean, to, to build on what you just said, what you said, one of the great things about role-playing games is you can try to resolve situations in ways you can think of or in different ways. And that's great. And the issue with alignment right now is that alignment is framed as narrowing your choices and removing that because the people who wrote the adventures don't think you'll try anything else. And then they framed it, but they're evil. It's okay to kill them. They do terrible things because they're clearly labeled evil. Like the book doesn't even entertain that. So if that's a great thing about role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons is special is shutting down the discussion by saying, no, they're evil. Don't think about doing anything else other than the storylines we present, which always present you as good guys who murder evil people. Don't think outside the box. It's a game. Have fun. Don't think about it. You just want to. Now, talking about other games, and Iron Clouds definitely does this. One of the cool things I like about it is a lot of games have what's called goal or mission oriented, you know, progression. In other words, it's not kill monsters, take treasure is depending on the wording, of course, like defeat the foe, which could be interpreted in many ways, right? It could be, hey, I, I stab them, or I capture them, or I drive them away, or, or do something else, right? It's about accomplishing a goal, and you get, you progress from that, rather than simply saying very directly, hey, kill the monsters, here's how oh, much XP you get. I mean, I, I, uh, now, there'll be some people might point out that like in a game like World of Warcraft, they might tell you, like, bring back the Staff of Eponym, but the only way to get that is to go kill a boss monster. But yeah. I'm just going to slightly point out that Dark Souls 2, which is very inspired by D&D, has the great meditation where there's a guy who orders you to go out and kill people, but every single murderer has a way around it to get around the murder. And uh, that is a deliberate conscious choice by the designers that you don't actually have to murder anyone. And, I, and it's hilarious to me because he's the most evil character in the game. And you can like, oh, I didn't kill anyone you asked for. Thanks for all the rewards, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. But uh, I do like this goal-based uh, discussion, though, because I think this is another really great example of endorsing player behavior with the rules, because it gets players to think about uh, what their objectives are, what they want to do, and that when they're sitting down to play, they should be going out to do one of these things that they've been told or that they set out to do in the first place, and not just kind of mill around and ask, like, so what are you doing today, guys? Well, uh, like, like an issue related to this, an issue I always have is like alignment is not useful as a role playing aid because half of your players chose true neutral and the other half of your players chose chaotic good. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. if you, tr if your players are ever in a situation and say like, oh no, the wagon is overturned in goblin infested areas. If we stop to help them, raiders might come and kill all of us. What do you do? And you ask the player, well, what would your alignment tell you to do? And half your players will say, well, I'm true neutral. So I have no strong feelings one way or the other. I, I don't do anything. And the, the chaotic good people will say, well, I'm always a good person, but only in ways that personally benefit and don't inconvenience me. So I can also choose to do nothing because I'm still a good person. I'm labeled good. It's just right here on my sheet, but only good when I feel like it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so those two alignments like don't help motivate characters because they, they literally remove them from any investiture in the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you play like a more mature game, like a vampire game uh, or geez, even Palladium because Palladium has an alignment system, but they didn't, they specifically each one of them as in a certain situation, what you would do in violent situations and negotiations. 
cetera. Like one average. of the few things that actually those sound like actual system. guidelines. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have an actual like sophisticated system. So you could turn to someone and say, "What's your alignment?" And they would say, "Well, I'm scrupulous." And it's like, okay, well, that says you would do this. It doesn't mean it would inform play. So if a player are neutral in modern D and D, alignment doesn't do any is specifically written in a way to be as pointless as possible. But they kept it in the book anyway, which is like as you know, and uh, it was bad before, and it's worse. I mean, I think I'll give uh, the little bit of credit you can give to it is that it's ignorable, which I realize is just as bad, probably in your eyes, Rafferty, as a designer. And like, why would you include something that that does that adds nothing? But well, um, I've been building back on rules endorsed behavior. Uh, this gets back to my original question. If, if you were playing a game that had rules for doing horrible things to people, because there are role-playing games out there that have rules. I mean, come on, vampire. You uh, you can jump on people in the middle of the night, molest them, and remove their bodily fluids. Okay? Like, there are games that have rules for that. Non-consent. Like, honestly, that just sounds like my Wednesday night. But non-consensually is the part that makes that problematic. <laughs> right. so non- but but va- vampire does have, like, humanity, which addresses some of those issues. But, like, like the, but this also, like, I'm not mentioning some of the other games. I'm sure people will mention them in the comments of, like, there are these games that have a reputation for being terrible because they had those rules. And I guess, like, the big one is there's a bizarre version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, first edition TMNT, that had rules that you could just randomly be a pedophile. It, it, it's it look it oh, up i don't remember yeah. that from reading it but but i'm not surprised <laughs> the they had to redact it you can look yeah. this up they had to yeah. re- i owned that edition and i uh it was gosh like, I, actually most of my books were after the bomb so yeah anyway. right There's well, also, of course the meme uh out there of fatal it's like well hey it has all these terrible non-consensual things you can do to people obviously it wants you to do them right well i mean that's where we get into rules endorsed behavior it's like well if a game has terrible rules in it but i ignore the terrible rules is the game still terrible it's that logic of how mm-hmm. terrible would a rule have to be is a rule terrible just by existing you know mm-hmm. like if, if, it's just, if it's just in the book but none of us use it you know like like to, to go to another example you know D has the rule uh, dnd first edition says women are weaker than men or dnd fifth edition dnd fifth edition says all orcs have within them the capacity to be evil ah. um if you're not you could just say well i'm not using the alignment rules therefore we need to have absolutely no discussion about this it matters nothing at all and um I, I think a lot of people would say no um but also this gets into the thing like i think it colors the conversation uh like yeah. if, when you read the published materials of dungeons and dragons even though this rule might not be in play the concept that bad guys are labeled evil and do nothing but wait in rooms for you to kill them because they've been labeled evil permeates the current design ethos of dungeons and dragons uh it, it, it's this problem in the game where, well, I'm saying it's a problem. Many people would enjoy a game where you go to a place and kill a bunch of things and and have fun, just want to grow. But um, it permeates the entire game where, where you try to get more morally complex stuff like Tyrant Queen or Dragon Heist or the Gripply Adventure for Candlekeep Mysteries. Right. It, it, the, the writers and, de- and designers, and, and well, not the writers, the designers and editors shut down that discussion. They say, we're not even going to have any discussion that you might treat any of these people like they have any right to life, liberty, and property. They are evil. Go kill them. Shut up. I think also something we, we've kind of been touching around in Rafferty, I should mention earlier, is how you write and what you say in those rules. Because you can have two systems that talk about have alignment, but the way you actually engage with that 
rule and you explain it, if you're very wishy-washy, like, yeah, we have this rule, but if you don't want to use it, that's fine. Versus like, no, this is the rule and this is where we're going to do it and we're going to be clear about it. Well, I think that's, that's a problem. That's a problem across many games, not just mm -hmm. D&D. See, yeah. I would agree with you there because, like, one of the like Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition is wishy washy, where it will say like, "Okay, this is a generic fantasy system. You can do any fantasy you want. Like, you can't do Lord of the Rings because our elves are weaker. You can't do Harry Potter, and you really can't do Game of Thrones. But you can do any fantasy you want. Moving on. They say that, but then the text of all orcs are evil and have the capacity with them is is in the plane in the the the, the plane text formatted yeah. as in this is a true thing. As mm -hmm. opposed to later when they might say dragonborns aren't in every fantasy setting, like in the side, they're in you know they're not in every fantasy. I mean, they're in Forgotten Realms and they're in Greyhawk and you know uh, you know they're in the only ones we care about. But they weren't originally. We had Adam during a spell plague. Don't ignore this. Right. Yeah. right. I mean, they're in all the published stuff we make. But moving on, the sidebars will say this is how you might format them or use them in your world and how you might do a relation. But the main text says, no, 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 they're all evil. If they had moved that to the sidebar, I'd have a lot less outrage on my soapbox here because it was like, okay, they, here are orcs. By the way, in many campaigns, they would be evil. It's like, okay, that's kind of bad. But no, it's D&D &D if you like read the text and go buy the book that lets you play an orc, uh, you know, will just tell you, oh yeah, you suck. Uh, you're evil and you suck. And no, I don't know why you would pick an orc. You should pick a half orc instead. I mean, like, what part of the outrage right now is that when they presented orcs as a player option, they made them worse. And then when people got on the forums and said, "Why are orcs worse?" they're just worse. They're they're evil. Why would you be an orc? You asked. We gave you rules, and now you suck. And why are you looking at us like that? Because suddenly, it, you know, it now it has racial and eugenic overtones. It was like, oh my god, you know. And they could have avoided all of this if they had gotten. But they have this mindset that. Some things are evil, and evil is bad, stupid, and wrong. Yeah. I mean, but I also want to talk about what she, what she is like. Again, you have the example of what is side text and what is core text, what is hard rules versus soft rules, right? What is implied versus what is stated directly. And uh, going back to my example of mission goal system, you have to be very careful with that because you have to give some clear examples. Otherwise, it would be like, oh, yeah, you're supposed to do this. But like, uh, and how we're gonna i mean the only things we have in the books are guns so i guess yes we're gonna solve this problem yeah but my only are tool... shoot throw and uh drink their blood i guess i'm yeah. doing all three these are all these are all my tools that i have this big gun this big you know flamethrower this one that causes explosions at a distance and i can summon a, a dragon from this guy's oh well, ah. i could even worse like what if you're a fighter it's like they don't even give the fighters like persuasion yeah you know, it's like, no, all you can do is climb and stab. But, unless, you, um, unless you pick a background that can sneak it in. Right. But, you but, know. but, I mean, I'm going to cynically counter that's not a problem for 99% of the games you're in because it's okay. They're evil. You can kill them. Uh, we, yeah. we label that. Don't think. It's just a game. Well, I think it... I think that... What am I trying to say? I think that it's also a good idea to look at this from the perspective of a player who is not examining things on the level that we are. Because when I think about a player, like, let's say I'm sitting down to a new game that I've never played before. I know all I know about this game is the genre conventions that I know it's drawing from, right? No. 
No. Uh, so, sorry, sorry, I'm going to repeat you in this. So what you're talking about a new player, like a new player shows up at the table. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how new are they? Have they ever played a role-playing game before? I'm going to say no. Never okay. played a role-playing game. And they don't know what conventions you're talking about because if they've seen Lord of the Rings, they're going to ask, why isn't my elf 200 years old and seven feet tall? If they've seen Harry Potter, they're going to ask, you know, how come I'm not, uh, you know, shooting ectoplasmic blasts immediately from my wand? And can travel through time and have invisible cloaks. They're not going to know any of this stuff. Sure, sure. Well, okay, so they might not know the specifics, but they will know that, like, this game, there's tough guys with axes and there's really scrawny wizards with long beards who can throw magic spells, you know? That's the kind of, that's the way that I'm, that's what I'm talking about in terms of, like, what would someone with no prior experience or knowledge expect? Well, and, and, and I'm going to go a little off topic here and say, they're going to ask you, okay, I'd like to throw a fireball. And then you'll tell them, no, that doesn't happen until fifth level. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll say, oh, okay. Now, in other, in other words, when I meet players who have no expectation, they have no expectation. The entire idea of alignment is not a concept that people walk into the game with. They've, they've, they've seen My Little Pony which has moral ambiguity and choices and that sort of thing. In fact, many episodes are devoted. Um, they, they've they been watching True Blood or Breaking Bad or Mad Men, which also have ambiguities and those sorts of things what people want. They don't come to the game expecting, uh, you know, that you're that, you know, what dwarves and elves are going to be because they're different in every fantasy setting. I mean, like, what you're describing is they would have to have experienced something else first. So when they come to my game, they don't know these things. And the book says, okay, write down your alignment. That, that's my objection to it. No, and alignment is not something people ask for when they come to the table. Yeah, No, that I, is very true. Alignment sucks. I'm not arguing that point. Yeah, I think the thing I noticed the most about uh, brand new people to the hobby who have no previous expectations will tend to act a little bit like themselves, which usually means that they will try to talk to people, try to understand what's going on, and then try to avoid conflict at any cost. And usually if it's a game about conflict, you have to kind of engineer them back into fighting. Yeah. But a lot of the time they'll just go, it's like, wait a second, these kobolds here are attacking and they're stealing food. Maybe they're just hungry and they'll attack the problem that way. They, they don't have the expectation that they're just there to fight them and slaughter them. So they don't treat them that way. That, 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 that's absolutely true. Yeah, the that reminds me of a story that was popular a couple of years ago and on, on social media about these little girls that were playing D D for the first time and they meet some wolves, right? And the wolves are hungry and you're expected to kill the wolves because so what the little girls did was they used a combination of magic and uh food that they had and they just fed the wolves and the wolves were happy and they domesticated the wolves and they went around with this pack of wolves that made them stronger and better and they could take on they actually did fight some other things that were really nasty. Right. But they understood that these big puppies were just hungry. And, and this is exactly what happened in your life in the first place. So it's perfect. Yeah. It's exactly yeah. what does happen and should happen. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up because uh, the first impulse of many players who don't know the rule, they haven't learned that the rules have shut down that avenue yet. They haven't learned you can try to negotiate with them, but you'll make a roll and it will fail and they'll get a surprise round on you and you'll take pain. They haven't been taught that hard lesson yet. New players are much more likely to work, think outside the box. It's the old school player, and, and and like that's another meta objection I have that D and D somehow became this default. Well, of course you have evil as a concept. 
We can't even get rid of it. D&D 4 tried to get rid of evil player characters and people lost their shit. No, we got to have this back. It's important to us that players can murder with impunity. So that's actually what I'm I'm getting at there. If you look at the way the game was designed, the people who designed it were playing war games. It was it was built in at the very beginning that you were going to be killing wolves because that's what we invented this thing to do. And I think a lot of what the interesting tension is here is that people come to D&D expecting it to be some sort of like writing exercise, improvisational group project think tank thing where it's like we can express our creativity because in largely that's how Dungeons and Dragons pitches itself. Right. And the potential is there for a lot of these games to provide that kind of experience. But I don't think that D&D is the place to do it necessarily. Well, and it goes back to my whole thing of like, well, maybe you should find a different game to play, guys. But we're gonna actually going to do a topic about that pretty well, soon. Yeah. So. But, but but also expanding on that is I want to point out that D&D morphed into that. Like if you go back to mm-hmm. D&D first edition, they will have the racial relations chart where they will say, okay, this is what oh, humans yeah. think of other humans. This is what trolls think of humans. This is what goblins think of humans. Now, they all pretty much hate each other. How much do they hate each other? But that was built in the original rules where, like, and also there's another rule that's in D&D that you might as well ask why that's there. The language rule. Why is D&D obsessed with language? When does language come up in the game? When do you talk to these guys? Why do they always have a note on them written in the common language that you could understand <laughs> instead of abyssal, which you might not? I'll tell you what, it's just a blocking tool. It's to prevent people from trying to negotiate with the goblins because they speak goblin. They don't speak common. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, in, in, in original D&D, it might come up and say, hey, I can negotiate with these guys. I speak goblin. And here's a chart for it. They hate us. But that doesn't, if a humanoid, because they had, you know, demi-humans and humanoids and then monsters, you might be able to negotiate. And they had a charisma table with reaction rolls on it. You could negotiate with certain monsters if they were negotiable. Uh, there's even D&D modules like that. The famous Lolf one where you fight the Spider Queen. Mm-hmm. Speaking of labor dispute, the very first module in that is the Hill Giant setting. And the Hill Giant setting has a slave revolt in it where the orcs that the giants have taken as as slaves are revolting in one part of the homestead. And even, like, the problem is it's badly written because they're presented only with their combat stats, but these orcs hate the same giants you do. In theory, you could talk to the orcs and say, hey, we hate the giants, you hate the giants, we'll help you get out of here, or at least can you let us at least travel through your space because we don't want to kill you. It's it's like, it's framed, it's... It's badly worded, and I think people took the wrong lessons away from original D&D. Like, basically, like, it's weird when the 70s version has in it provisions for you might negotiate with these people, or you might, I mean, it's a long shot, but you might be able to do that, uh, and has now moved into D&D 5th edition where monsters are now computer mobs where they sit in a room and patiently wait for you to kill them. They simplified it down and then immediately lost the nuance and the point of that nuance. Yeah. Uh, so, quick fire question, I think. So, Rafferty, since you're the, uh, since you're one of the designers here, what do you do when you want to write a rule and understand how players are going to react to it? How do you write a rule that will not encourage terrible behavior? Uh, don't write the rule to have terrible behavior in it. <laughs> I mean, like, what's a process-wise or a thing that goes through your head when, like, you go back and edit over your own words? Man, I'm going to sound so pretentious. Because, uh, <laughs> like, like in, in my head, I'm thinking about all the other rules that I have observed that um, that I knew could be bad. 
Uh, I mean, the X card, which uh, 2013, John Severolp, hope I pronounced that right, introduced the X card, which was just a meta rule that you could just say, look, I don't like what's going on here. Please stop. And you just throw a card on the table and say, you know, stop. And um, we didn't want to put any rule in the game that would let people do stuff. Uh, I think one of the big ones, uh, I want to give a shout out to Decipher here, for a 40 hour Decipher. When they made the Star Trek role-playing game, like their version, um, one of the problems you ran into in stuff like Star Trek um, would be you would have commanders and you'd have like lower ranking officers. So in theory, some players could be Captain Picard and order people around to do things. And if they didn't do those things, they would, um, you know, like that's against military protocol, you get punished because that's how a command structure works. And that's problematic in gaming because you might have some players ordering players around and players don't want to do it. If a player keeps not doing what they were told by the superior officer, they would get punished for it, which is why you don't see that as a role-playing game option, not to uh, lessons in your Mass Effect, which is just like Master where Captain Shepard just does everything. Cough yeah. only, War, cough. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but um, so Decipher looked at the problem and solved it by... Um, using sticks instead of carrots. They did two things. First of all, commanding officers always act first in the combat sequence or any sequence. So like, what are we going to do? Start with captain. Captain says what goes on first. And the captain could say, well, I'll, let, I'll hear other people out or go first. They're the ranking officer to do that. And the second thing is the captain can tell someone to do something and give them a bonus to do it. Like, okay, I want, you know, put all power in the forward shield. You have a plus one to all of your roles to do that because I told you to do that. And when the ensign's turn comes up, they could choose, no, no, that's folly. We've got to put all power in the photons. And they would move, you know, if they don't do what the boss says, nothing happens, but they turned down a bonus. Mm -hmm. And so this got in the idea that we wanted that a stick, sorry, a carrot instead of a stick theory, giving people bonuses to do things that we want them to do uh, is usually the best way you can do it because players should have the free will and they should be allowed to do things. You know, like I think a big thing is honorable, which shows up in very many versions of our games, which is if you choose to play an honorable character, everyone gets a penalty to stop you from being honorable. But if you choose to stop being honorable, you just revert back to zero. And it's like, well, you spent right. points on being honorable. So I guess they're wasted right now. But it was just like, you know, you don't actually, it, it, it's the wording of it too. You don't get a bonus to be honorable. So you just can't say, I'm going to kill this guy and get plus one all your roles. It's, I'm going to be honorable. And if anyone tries to interfere with this honorable duel, they get penalties to do it. And that was specifically so you wouldn't use it as a hammer to get your way. But we gave you a specific bonus, like, because this endorses you to be honorable. You're still being rewarded for it. And, um, you know, because other people have penalties to stop you, but you're doing it for its own sake. And that felt more like what it would be like to be an honorable character. Right. Um, it also respects the player's autonomy to choose at any time how they want to really act. Like if you want to be a jerk, like if you're watching our Iron Claw stream, you can watch uh, Griffin constantly blowing his anonymous because if he re if he responds to names, he loses his anonymity bonus, which is a increased res resistance role. Count the number of times I ditch pacifism, everybody. That's <laughs> <laughs> also built into the rules. Even the Blessed, which I didn't play in this game, Blessed wizards all have pacifism. So as mm -hmm. soon as they do any aggressive attack, they lose a big buff to all their defenses because pacifism is a defensive buff. And yeah, and it was like, you know, um, that's a specific decision because you're that kind of character because we expect you to get into violent situations, but you've made a morality decision that you will try almost every, your 
incentivized to try everything you can before you go to violence, but we don't stop you from violence. And that I think is, um, but that's also like, that's also a player choice in Iron Claw or any of our games. We have never labeled anyone just, you know, an entire race of people just evil. We don't mm -hmm. do that. There may be people who are acting against your best interests and there are nobles and other clans that uh, are doing evil things. But um, it's this weird thing that you see in stuff like Charmed or other fantasy shows where evil is an inherent genetic quality that is inherent to these beings. They must be exterminated. Uh, I've never done that. And it's really distasteful, I think, that D&D &D 5 like, has gone to the logical conclusion. Uh, 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 of that kind of like weird eugenic statement. So no, we've never like a, we we do have immoral and terrible people in our games. Uh, also, we don't give them bonuses for being uh, as Griffin already pointed out. Being able to just kill anybody when I feel like it is already its own reward. And what a fun reward it is! I think a, a final take on this yeah, is like, in your I, final I, words. I'm working on a on a on a rule that I wanted to encourage people to work together. So it's basically it's a hindrance uh, and help rules where if you help somebody it, and this is very common in many other games, right? You you your difficulty rating goes up down, but also you can work together to hinder your your enemy as well. And I I put that rule because I saw in many games that kind of or they don't discourage or encourage people just go on their own. So like yeah, I'm gonna just do this and and let the other party members be left behind. And I was like, I want to encourage players to work together as a team so i felt compelled to create a, a rule set or sub rule set that has that as a bonus like caravan's a stick like you don't get pen you don't get a, you don't get punished for not helping other people but it's much easier to solve your problems if you say okay i'm gonna help this person and they're gonna get a bonus for that and and if somebody's getting attacked or something i'm gonna i'm gonna hinder them so that we can as a group survive and, and reach our goal so with that yeah. and the goal orientation that drives people not to be hopefully murder hoboy. And the description I have so far is, you know, there. In fact, I, I I put it to the GMs like it depends on how you describe the goal. If you tell yeah. someone to kill someone, then your players are going to go and kill them. But if you put it in a words and saying, you know, disable or capture or defeat, you're encouraging your players to. You're opening those options to your players, and your players are a good chance that they are going to go like, wait a minute, defeat necessarily mean that I got to shoot them in the head. Right. And so on and so forth. And I also have a character which most of the stuff that they do is talk, right? They're the face. So that also encourages people like, hey, I have this character that can do these things. Hey. Yeah. So. All right. And Dred, what kind of uh, closing comments do you think you got here? Uh, so I want to close out by giving my personal GM advice where it comes to rules. Um, I think that whether or not players are conscious of the rules endorsing behavior, I think they do. I agree that they do. And I think that you can get your game moving a lot more efficiently and just playing better if you are at least aware of what the rules are telling you to do. So when I pick up a new game, I look through the rule book. I look at the kind of challenges that are presented and the kind of roles that the players can make. And I try to use that as a starting point for the kinds of stories that can be told with that system. And I think that if you're conscious of that, you'll have a much easier time and your players will have fun too because they'll get to roll their dice uh, more often. All right, then. So I think for now, that'll go ahead and conclude for this episode of Notes from the Aleph. We stream episodes bi-weekly Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you can also join us live at twitch.tv slash Ractus. We also stream and record weekly tabletop games on the same channel, and you can come join us when we start at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sundays and Wednesdays. 
Norman Rafferty here is a partner and writer for Sanguine Games. Check out sanguinegames.com and join us on the Reddit and Twitter. And look forward to the upcoming Book of Corals Iron Call expansion book, where you can gauge your own pirate adventures. Don't forget to check out Red Rabbit and Booking for a Game over on startplayinggames.com as Red Rabbit. And Lessons, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitch under Lessons 1, Lessons Learned 1, and on YouTube under Lessons Learned. And you can find me here on Sundays, uh, GMing a fine group of people playing uh, the classic Great Greyhawk, but under 5th edition rules, uh, Into mm-hmm. the Wild Coast. There we go. So be sure, everyone, to like, subscribe, comment, buy plushies, and come see us all again. Till next time.